Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. It's called Consolation, Condemnation, and Invitation. Not the most creative outline in the world. Those are actually the three points of the sermon. So, hey, it's simple enough. We can few pegs on the wall to hang our pictures on, right? So that's where we're going today. So good morning again. Just a warm winter welcome. Everybody watching online, I just want to thank you for your participation. Even though you're at home or wherever you are, just want to thank you and, and welcome you. As well, I'm really excited to be here to deal with this passage today. This passage excites me. You guys are going to see why as we go through it. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law have prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Heavenly Father, we turn to you in the name of Christ, and we ask that you would open our eyes to your scripture here today. Make us see our Savior. Make us see who we are. Remind us of who you are. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this time we move into a new section in Matthew. Chapters 11 and 12 they deal with the beginning of the rejection of Jesus Christ. We just came out of a section where Jesus was sending his 12 apostles out, you remember, um, and then he told them that persecution was going to come. Now we're moving into a different section of where we start to see the opposition or the rejection of Jesus Christ starting to come in. In this passage, one guy expresses his doubt in the Messiah, and another group of people willfully reject him. And so we're going to see how Jesus deals with both. One thing that's really cool about this passage is we see how Jesus deals with us when we're doubting. And if you've been walking with the Lord for long enough, you know, you've experienced seasons of doubt. You know, maybe you didn't doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you did. Maybe you've doubted how he says he's going to work in your life. Or, you know, maybe you thought he was going to work in a, in a way and he didn't work in that way. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, you've had a season of doubt, some form or another. And so we learn about how he deals with those who are doubting in this passage today. And then probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible, the invitation um, in verses 25 through 30. So here we go. First of all, in the first part of our message, Jesus gives consolation to John the Baptist. He gives consolation to him because he essentially had some reasonable doubts. And let's talk about it. John the Baptist's question in verses 1 through 3, you know, when he'd heard about the works of Christ going on in prison, he'd probably heard just little sketches of them, right? Because the disciples, his disciples were uh, being able to come to him in prison, being able to tell him, you know, what was going on. So it was probably just kind of like sketches. And so he sends two of his, or he sends his disciples um, to uh, go and to ask uh, Jesus, uh, you know, are you the Messiah or, or what's going on here? You know, John wants to know, um, is Jesus who he thought he was? Now, why is John in prison, first of all? Anybody know right offhand? She knows over there. Yeah, exactly. Herod, uh, exactly right. Yeah, John the Baptist called out Herod Antipas for an incestuous relationship with his sister-in-law. So he, he seduces his sister-in-law and he marries her. And then, you know, once he finds out he's going to marry her, he divorces and kicks his wife to the side. And so, exactly right. Good job. Um, John is locked up in prison. He's locked up in this fortress uh, called uh, Machaerus. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, um, this is where he was at, a massive fortress with a dank dungeon on the east side of the Dead Sea. John would eventually be put to death there. If you want to read about John the Baptist's death, you can read in uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. It's gruesome. It's just, ugh. So he sends two of his disciples to go get the full picture, and he says, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now this, remember I said this is a section where we're getting into the rejection of Christ? This is the beginning of it right here. It's starting to come from 
kind of an unexpected source from Jesus' you know, cousin, John the Baptist. Um, now, this isn't just outright rejection, but this is a form of it. This is a form of questioning Jesus and, and who he is, and it starts to come from him. He asks, are you the coming one? Referring to, are you the Messiah? Now, this is really interesting because... Other verses tell us that John the Baptist was clear on the identity of Jesus, right? Do you remember his baptism? Um, this is, uh, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals are not worthy that I should untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, right? He's talking about Jesus. Um, he said also in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Talking about the judgment that the Messiah is going to bring. So at one point, John was clear about who Jesus was and what he was going to do. But now, he's questioning. Do we look for another? John has unmet expectations to some degree. The Jews at this time and the Jewish leaders, they understood that the Messiah was coming and they understood that what the Messiah was, would do, but they didn't have the full picture of the timeline of how it would all work out. They, a lot of people expected Jesus to be something that he was not, uh, at least at that time. So John had some unmet expectations. Why would he ask this question? He might think, you know, well, I'm your cousin, and I was the forerunner for your ministry, so why am I in jail still? Why haven't you used your you know, power or something to get me out of here? I've heard about all these things that you're doing. John had been in jail at this time for more than a year, and this wasn't you know, county pampering jail. This was dank dungeon with like rats trying to gnaw your fingertip off. You know? um, this, was a, this was dank prison that he was in. And so he... Not, not that county's a picnic, I'm not trying to say that, but our jails compared to this, you know, it's, don't, don't, get the, don't get the picture of American nice, you know, human rights looking out for you sort of jail. Get the picture of like torturous prison, you know, uh, dungeon. Maybe he would think, you know, why is Jesus doing all this healing and these exorcisms and all this mercy? Um, I thought the Messiah was supposed to bring judgment. Maybe he's thinking, why is he operating in Galilee instead of Jerusalem? Isn't the Messiah supposed to come to Jerusalem and rule and reign? Maybe he's thinking, I thought the Messiah was to bring the kingdom, and this doesn't look much like the kingdom. All these things in his mind, all these expectations were not coming to pass. Therefore, John slipped into doubt and disillusionment. Now, it's easy to get weary and confused about God when Jesus doesn't do the things that we think he should or do them in the timeline that we think he should. It gets easy. You know, when you're going through an extended trial, some sort of difficulty in your life, you start getting tempted to wonder, is God really, you know, is he really doing the things that he said he would do? When he doesn't do things that make sense to us, or how we hope they would be, we get impatient and we lose hope, become disillusioned, we begin to doubt. Maybe that's where you're at today. I think you'll be really encouraged about how Jesus deals with John. Verses 4 through 6, Jesus tells John's disciples, go tell John to interpret the works that I've been doing and, and don't get offended at how I'm working. Jesus answered and said, verse 4, go and tell John these things that you see and hear. And then he lists in verse 5 
all kinds of different works that the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would do and other prophets as well. Isaiah chapter 35, you can read about them. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied, he predicted the works. He said, these are the works that the Messiah would do. Now, Jesus knows, John knows his Bible, right? And so he says, you're getting impatient. You're getting uh, doubt. You know, you're doubting. You're being discouraged because you're dealing with a long trial. Well, here, go tell him this. Tell him to interpret these works that I've been doing. And so John would say, yeah, these, this is what the Messiah was supposed to do. Um, that's what it says in Isaiah. And John would connect the dots. This is a very important lesson for us, right? When we're going through a season where we're starting to get impatient with Jesus, he's not healing me how I want, he's not healing my family member how I want, he's not straightening out my family how I want, he's not doing the things that I think he should do. It's very important to look at the works of God, how he does work, to remind yourself of how he does work. Right? And that's what Jesus is telling him to do here. Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to focus on the works of God and what God is doing. You need to just kind of detach from your own expectations for a moment. And you need to put your eyes on how God does work and how you know he works, right? And, and how you can, what is he doing that you know? Now, I think this is encouraging because there's some people that are terrified when they get, a, a, you know, a little bit of doubt. Like the last thing they would ever come do is tell the pastor that they've been doubting. You know what I mean? Oh, I got to tell you, I've been kind of doubting lately. I mean, that's really incredibly hard for people to say, to admit to their Christian friends, to even admit to themselves, right? But you have to be encouraged by this, right? That Jesus doesn't say, go tell John that he just should man up in there. I mean, come on, quit having a lapse of faith already. Right? John needs reassurance, and so Jesus says, I'll give you the greatest reassurance. Go interpret these works that I've been doing. Go look at how God works. Jesus is offering John reassurance. Jesus is pointing John's eyes to the works. Do they line up with Scripture? <coughs> blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, blessed are those who don't stumble over the fact that Jesus doesn't exist to live up to your unrealistic expectations. Blessed are the people that don't get tripped up on the fact that Jesus is not just some rabbit's foot or some genie lamp that you rub and he performs for you. Blessed are the people that don't trip over that. That's what he's saying. This is good. This is good application, right? If you're going through a season right now, the best thing that you should do is just focus on how you know that God works, right? You might say, life is difficult. Okay, yes, but you know from scriptures that God uses difficulty as a tool to make you like himself. Right? You know that. You might say, life is disappointing. Yes, but doesn't disappointment with this life cause you to long for heaven even more? Let me tell you this. If you're not disappointed by this life, then your mind and your heart are not tuned to heaven. You're not. Life is confusing. Yes. But doesn't that make you appreciate the sure foundation of God's word even more? Life is painful. Yes, and through pain you learn to depend on him for consolation. Life is lonely, yes, but you learn how to enjoy his company. 
Life is stressful. Yes, but if it wasn't, would you ever really turn to him? It's important to put your eyes on how God works and what he's doing. When we're disillusioned, doubting, and impatient, we do well to remind ourselves of these things. He doesn't act according to my expectation, but he follows his plan and purposes. Now, rather than trash John, Jesus uses some eloquent words to commend him to the crowd. Uh, and it's likely to prevent people from getting the wrong idea. You know, like maybe people had heard the questions of the disciples of John and they think, oh, he's having, you know, he's having a lapse of faith there in jail. And, and so he doesn't want the rumors to get spread or whatever. I don't know why he does it. But he starts in verses 7 through 15 and he uses this eloquent language. You know, what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see, right? The picture is he commends, uh, you know, he commends three things. He commends John's courage. He commends John's consecration. And he commends him, uh, you know, just for his greatness. Uh, you see in verse 7, he's commended for his courage. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Meaning, remember when John was baptizing out in the Jordan, in the wilderness? What did you guys go out to see? Did you go to see a reed shaken in the wind? Now, I like to go to Lime Creek Nature Center. And this made me think of that, you know. There's, the, there's a pit out there with all these tall grasses beside it. And you can tell when there's been a deer like sleeping in there because they're all bent over and broken. The reeds are kind of broken. Well, that's what he's saying. He's like, do you, is, do you think John the Baptist is like some reed that when the wind gets too strong, it blows him over? Uh, you know, the idea is picture of like being bounced around with the winds of difficulty and vacillating. He says, no, he's not a reed shaken by the wind. He's commending him because he's a man of strong convictions. John was not somebody that was blown over easy. Remember when he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers? <laughs> Can you imagine? You got the Pope and all the, everybody, all the clergy coming up to you, and, you know, and, and you're like, hey, you brood of vipers. You know, or whatever. That's courageous, right? Now he commends him in verse 8 for his consecration. He says, did you go to see a man in soft garments? He goes, you know, nice clothing. He goes, that's what people in king's houses do. John was an aesthetic. John wore camel's hair. He ate locusts. He lived out in the wilderness. John was consecrated. The way that John followed the Lord was he separated himself from all the impurities and pollutions of society, and he kept himself pure out in the desert. He was like a, you know, kind of a, a wilderness dweller. Uh, you know, and so Jesus is commending him for his consecration. He's not addicted to the comforts. That's what he means that the guys with the soft clothes are in king's houses. What he's getting at is John isn't some guy that can't go five minutes without his cell phone. You know what I mean? John the Baptist isn't some kind of guy that can't sleep unless it's a pillow top mattress and it's at the right temperature and he's got a fan blowing in his room. And he's got a drink of water beside his bed. You know, he's not that kind of guy. John's the kind of guy that'll sleep in the wilderness and eat an animal carcass and, you know, or whatever. I don't know what he eats except for locusts and honey. I know that's on the menu. But John was uh, consecrated to the Lord. He was set apart. He set himself apart to fulfill the calling. He didn't get entangled, as Paul says to Timothy, with civilian pursuits, civilian pursuits. John was a man about the Lord. Then he commends him for his greatness in verses 9 through 11. He says, a prophet? He goes, yeah, I say to you, more than a prophet. Now, what's he mean by more than a prophet? Well, all the prophets up until John prophesied about the Messiah, but John saw the Messiah, see? So John, in this sense, is more than a prophet. And verse 10 says that he's the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. I send my messenger before your face, and so on. 
Verse 12, he says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What this is getting at is John was persecuted and eventually imprisoned, right, for the preaching of the kingdom and for being a man of God. All the prophets had been persecuted violently up until then. John was no different. And then it goes into this next statement there where it says in verse 12, and the violent take it by force. Now, there's a, commentators are largely divided on this. Every commentary that I read, every scholar that I read had a different take on this. Um, not everyone. A couple of them said the same thing. It's kind of an interesting thing to say because the one take would be, you know, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven, heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. So people have been persecuting the prophets and they've been trying to force the kingdom of God, like force their way into it through violence, right? But over in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, in Luke's account of this, uh, same sort of thing, he words it a little differently. And so when we read the two different wordings, we can kind of get an idea of what the Greek language is saying, right? This is an interesting passage. Luke reads it like, or he writes it like this. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. See, and the violent take it by force and everyone is pressing into it. You see the difference? One take would be that violent people are trying to take the kingdom. The other one is, is that these violent people or whoever they are in the Greek language, th these people are actually pressing into it, right? So one commentator puts it like this, and I think this is probably accurate from my study of it. This is what, this is what one Greek scholar says. Let me read it to you. He says, the kingdom presses ahead relentlessly and only the relentless press into it. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God. But to live in the kingdom, to apprehend what Jesus has done isn't a passive thing, right? The kingdom presses ahead relentlessly and only the relentless pass, press their way into it. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this, he said that a Sunday school teacher came to him one day and said, oh, I've just been teaching in Sunday school for 20 years and nobody's ever come to the Lord. I've never seen a kid get converted. And he says, but are you pressing into it? violently. He says, it's because you've never become violent. And you're like, what the heck? Spurgeon had a way with words. What he's getting at is the blessing in the kingdom, the power in the kingdom. These things aren't received passively. And so he told that Sunday school teacher, like, maybe you've never seen a conversion, but maybe you're just kind of passive about everything that you're doing for the Lord. Have you ever relentlessly pressed in? Have you relentlessly got down on your knees and begged the Lord for conversions to come through your ministry? Have you got down on your knees and begged that the Lord would bring conversions through the people in your family that you witness to, right? Because it's only the relentless that, pa that press their way into this, right? And that's what he's, I believe that's what he's getting at there because he's talking about uh, just the nature of, you know, how, who John is. You know, he's one of these relentless. That's, that's my take on it. Another commentator puts it like this. The kingdom is making great strides and now is the time for courageous souls, forceful people, to take hold of it. Here's another commentator. Uh, the kingdom will never be received passively. It is always founded on God's work on our behalf, but God's work will always produce a response in us. 
They are not lazy wishes or cold endeavors that will bring men to heaven. So in other words, he's saying, this is, there's no time for lazy Christians, right? He's like, we got to press, we got to press into the kingdom and press into this kingdom work uh, relentlessly or, or violently. I like that. I've never seen kids come to the Lord in my Sunday school ministry. Well, you've never been violent. What? <laughs> no, of course. That's not what he meant. But he knows how to shock you, right? Charles Spurgeon was master of, of words there. So the application of that's very simple. Press into the kingdom of God and don't be lazy about it. Verse 14, uh, interesting verse, he says, if you're willing to receive it, he's still talking about John the Baptist here. Right? He's not trashing John, he's singing his praises instead. And he says, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. You see that? Have you guys ever wondered what that means? Well, he's not saying that John was a resurrected Elijah. But John took on Elijah's prophetic role. Uh, boldly confronting the sin and pointing people to God in the nation. He starts out by saying, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah. You see, if the, if the Jews would have repented at their sin, if they would have heeded the message of Christ and repented, and in that sense, then John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment of Elijah to them. And that's what he means. Now, many weren't receiving it. But those who were willing, who had the desire of true disciples, they could understand what Jesus is saying. Look how he ends that. He goes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, what he's saying is this thing I just said is kind of confusing, but if you have the ears of a disciple, you'll get it. Right? If you're truly seeking to know what the Bible means, you'll get it. That's what Jesus is saying there. If you've got the ears to hear, uh, let him hear. So, that's our first point. Jesus gave consolation to this guy that had some reasonable doubts, right? Look at how he dealt with him. I mean, John's weary. He's dealing with this incredibly difficult situation. He's interpreting the works that are going on. He's looking at life and he's, he's confused about how God is working. Now, if you've ever been impatient with God, if you've ever been confused about how he's working in your life, you'll find great comfort from that because Jesus doesn't trash him. He just says, look, get your eyes on the word, how God works and how you've seen God work and how you know God works, right? And he reassures him with that. Essentially, he tells him, I am him, right? And maybe Jesus wants to do that with you today. Maybe if you will uh, take your eyes off your own situation for a while and fix them solely on Jesus Christ, Maybe he'll remind you that he is who he says he is, right? Now, condemnation for willful rejectors. So this opposition to Jesus is building. The first one witnessed in John the Baptist. He kind of had reasonable doubts. Jesus reassured him. But here come some unreasonable doubts, and we're going to see how Jesus deals with them. Uh, what shall I like in this generation? He says, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their companions saying, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We mourned you. You did not lament. Now, what that is saying is, um, you know, they're like kids playing a game, right? Um, we wanted to play wedding, and you didn't respond. We wanted to play funeral, and you didn't respond to that. And that's how the people treated John the Baptist and Jesus is like, um, you know, they didn't really respond how the people thought they should, right? And then so he goes on, he says, well, John, you know, was aesthetic. This guy was like super, de he deprived himself. He lived out in the wilderness and, you know, he ate locusts and honey and he was, he, he wore camel's hair and he didn't, he wasn't in, uh, you know, he, he, he consecrated himself. And you say, well, he's possessed by the devil. 
Well, Jesus comes and he does the things that just normal people do. He eats and drinks and all this other stuff. And well, you say he's a drunk. So, you know, bless you. Jesus is drunk and, you know, he's a drunk and he's a glutton. And oh, Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. So the thing was, was Israel wasn't satisfied with anything, right? It was like, here comes this guy that represents super holiness. And well, we don't like him. He's possessed by the devil. And here comes a guy that just acts like everybody else. Oh, he can't be the Messiah. He's worldly. You know what I mean? Now, that same attitude happens to people today, doesn't it? Where they'll look at certain Christians and they'll go, oh, that, he can't have a good walk with the Lord. He's too legalistic. He's too this and that. He's too square. He wears a suit to church. Those guys are, they're legalists down there. They're no good. Oh, well, look at this other church. Well, the worship leader doesn't wear shoes. Oh, they're too worldly. You know what I mean? And that same sort of attitude happens in people today. Like nobody can do it right, you know, except for you, <laughs> you know? It's kind of interesting. I, I was listening to my niece play a game uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, her friend at my house. And I was listening to her make up the rules as it went. You ever heard a kid do that? <laughs> like, yeah, let's play a game. You're like, what are the rules? Like, ah, they're here they come, though. Every time, it, it always goes in her favor. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and uh, that's essentially what Israel was doing. They're being like my niece, right? They're, you know, that's, they didn't like them, you know? But he goes and he says something at the end there, but wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom was personified, uh, you know, in this day as, as a her. That's what it is. Wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to reject John the Baptist? You want to reject me? Well, you're going to see the works. You're going to see what comes from it. And you're going to find out what true wisdom is, you know. And that's what it means by wisdom is justified by her children. It was probably a proverbial statement with the Jews. Essentially, it's like saying, hey, somebody can tell you whatever they want, but you can look at their life and you can see if they're wise or not. You know, pretty easy. So now he goes and he pronounces woe to these uh, cities that won't repent here. So see the unreasonable doubts there? They just willfully didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Ah, you know, John did this, Jesus did this. And now this is the same thing in this next section, unreasonable doubts, right? Unreasonable reasons to reject Jesus. Woe to you, Chorazin. Uh, Bethsaida. And he goes on and he lists these cities that he had done tons of miracles in. He'd done all these really powerful works in these cities. And then so what he says is, if I would have done the same stuff in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, Tyre and Sidon is like proverbial cities known for immorality. So it's, it's kind of like saying today in a modern context, Jesus be saying, I could have done this on the Hollywood strip at midnight. And those people would have repented. But you, you saw all these works and you failed to repent. I could have done this downtown Vegas and they would have all repented in sackcloth and ashes. And, that's, and he says the same thing about uh, Sodom there too. But then he brings up Capernaum in verse 23 and he says, Capernaum, you who are exalted to heaven. Now, why does he say that? Well, he says that because that's where his home base was. Essentially, that's where Jesus, you know, did a lot of stuff at. So they had this blessed position that they were in, that they'd seen the light and still rejected, right? Now, this is interesting right here. He says it will be more tolerable. Look in verse 22. More tolerable for um, Tyre and Sidon. And then you see in verse 23, more tolerable in the judgment for Sodom. Notice what more tolerable, those two terms stand out to us because we see that there are different degrees of punishment in hell, just like there are different degrees of reward in heaven. But there are different degrees of punishment in hell. 
let's put it like this. Because they had so much light given to them, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, and they rejected it, their punishment will be worse. You ever had somebody ask you the question, what about the tribes people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? It, you know, it's like an atheist will come at you with that and say, how could God be good if he's going to judge these people that have never heard the gospel? What this gets at is there's different degrees of judgment that are coming based on the amount of knowledge you have about Jesus Christ. Let's put it like this. If you grew up in a Christian home, you went to Christian school, you, you knew the Bible, you had Bibles on your shelves, you went through confirmation, you did all that other stuff, and you rejected Jesus, you're going to get dealt with more severely than somebody that has never heard about Jesus. That's pretty interesting when you think about America as a whole, because America's had every opportunity to repent and turn to the light, you know what I mean? I always like that when people say, what about the tribes person? I say, well, what about you? You're the one that's been, re you've received so much light. You know Jesus Christ died for your sins and called you to follow him wholeheartedly. What about you? You know, to him who is given much, much is, respect, is expected, right? We're more liable because we've heard than we are from somebody that hasn't heard. And that's what he's saying about them. I did all these great works. You guys, Vegas would have repented long before. You guys don't even repent. Woe to you. And when Jesus is saying woe, that's the worst thing that Jesus could say to you or to anybody is woe to you. It's not like you're on a horse and like, whoa. Uh, it's, uh, it's not that. It's like, oh, woe is me. Like shame is bad. You know, what's coming is bad. So you see, John dealt with, or Jesus dealt with John's reasonable doubts gently. But these are unreasonable doubts. You've seen, you've experienced the light and you've still rejected. And so Jesus has condemnation for that. Now, our last point, Jesus' invitation to weary souls. In verses 25 through 27, you'll notice that Jesus thanks his father for how he has chosen to reveal the truth of the gospel. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord in heaven of earth, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. The wise and the prudent are, it's sarcasm. You guys probably get that, right? Um, Jesus is calling the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying the wise and the prudent, he's praising God his Father, he's saying, I thank you, Lord, I just think it's amazing that these arrogant, proud, religious people that have no need for repentance, no need to, they don't ever ask the Lord for their sins to be forgiven, they don't think they need to. These people, um, thank you that you've, you've hidden it from them and you've revealed it to the babes. Now, who are the babes? Those are the people that are humble and, yeah, Christians, right? I thought you were pointing at yourself like me, like I'm a babe. <laughs> like, well, that's good, healthy self-esteem there. <laughs> but that's essentially what he means, those Christians. He's the humble people. The people, listen, if you're sitting in here today and none of this makes any sense to you whatsoever, week after week you come here and nothing makes sense to you, you might be those that Jesus is sarcastically calling the wise and prudent. Now, if this stuff makes sense to you, you might be the babes. See, because if God doesn't, if you don't come to God and say, open my ears, Lord, open my heart, and you don't humble yourself before him, this, none of this is going to make any sense to you. You're just going to sit here and this is going to go in one ear and out the other, right? It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter 
It doesn't matter. If you're not getting it, you know, either that or it's unclear teaching. But I think week after week after week after week, if it's not making sense, you might be the wise and prudent. Entry into the kingdom of heaven involves recognizing your complete dependence upon God for salvation. This is a lot like a child is completely dependent upon loving adults to care for them. If you don't realize that you're completely dependent upon the Lord for salvation and for him to take care of you, then, you know, you're, you're one of the wise and prudent. You don't, you don't get it. Verse 27, then. So Jesus is praising God for how he reveals the truth like that. Humble people get it. Proud people don't get it. And then he goes on and he says, um, all things, verse 27, have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Can you imagine if somebody came in the room here today and says, nobody knows God but me. Nobody does. And God doesn't know anybody but me. You'd think that dude is crazy. And if Jesus Christ wasn't God himself in the flesh, he would be crazy. But he, that's what he's saying right there is, I've got this connection with God nobody knows. And then he says um, at the end of verse 27, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you know God today, it's because Jesus Christ, he willed it. That's pretty exciting, right? You might think, well, I finally got my act together and now I'm starting to go to church and man, you're patting yourself on the back and thinking, I'm just doing a great job. I used to be such a loser and now I'm just, I'm serving Jesus. I'm going to church. I'm Listen, you don't get any credit for that. You know, he gets all the credit because he's the one that chose to reveal the father to you. If you know anything about father God today, it's because Jesus the Christ has revealed him to you. That's a beautiful Man, that's awesome. That's a lot to be thankful for. You can't wrap that up and put it under the tree, but you could try. You could write that out on a little Bible verse and put it in a package, and then on Christmas morning, you'd be like, oh my gosh, the Son revealed the Father to me. Yes, that's so good. It's so good. There's nothing better. You don't have anything better than that. You don't. None of us do. It's so good to know God. That's worthy of pausing and meditating. Verses 28 through 30, then now Jesus invites his hearers to come to him and shake off all other burdens. So he says, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now Jesus presents this invitation, and the illustration takes us into a field of oxen, bearing burdens, yoked together with what's called a yoke. It's a piece of wood that, um, it's like a wood and, and some different, it's like a device that ties two animals together. Um, and so like if they're pulling a plow, if they're yoked together, then the force of both of them will pull this plow because they're yoked together. Now, I love it how he starts this out in verse 28 and he says, come to me. That's what Jesus says to people. Come to me. He doesn't say, come to church. No, it's good that we all go to church. That's a good thing. We're being obedient to God in doing so. But he doesn't say, come to a religious code of rules. He doesn't say, come to 
confirmation. He doesn't say, come to a building. But he says, come to me, a person, a living being. It's worthy of pausing right there and asking, is that, are you in a relationship with a living being? Have you come to him or have you come to some idea? Have you come to some, something else? But have you come to him personally? Because that's what he's asking. If you, you know, I like watching the young people coming out in here because you start to learn more and more that your mom's relationship doesn't get you into heaven. Your dad's relationship, your grandparents' relationship, it doesn't get you into heaven. You've got to realize you need to have your own relationship with the Lord. Come to me, he says. And notice how he says, all of you. Now, for you theology nerds, some of your heads are cooking right now, right? Right? Because he just got done saying the only ones that know anything about the Father are the ones that I reveal, but now he's saying all. So which is it? Is it only those or is it all? And I will tell you, the answer is yes. The invitation always goes out to all, but the Bible clearly says that he chooses. If you have a problem with that today, you're saying, well, how could, I got a problem with the fact that God chooses some and not others. Well, let me ask you, have you given your life to the Lord? Well, no. Well, maybe you're not chosen. I don't know. You want to find out if you're chosen? Give your life to the Lord. That's simple. The invitation goes out to all. But who? All you who labor and are heavily laden. Now, in the context of Matthew's gospel, the, those who labor and are heavily laden are those that are under the burden and the weight of legalism. These are the ones that are under the religion of Phariseeism. Those who are... Now, there's application for anybody that's dealing with difficulty in life here, of course. But in the context, what he's talking about is, this is a big turning point in Jesus' ministry, right? Now he is officially calling them and saying, come out of this burden of religion and come to me. You're under a heavy burden. Do you know that the religion at that time wasn't Old Testament biblical Judaism? You know that, right? I always used to be confused about this when I read the New Testament. I get kind of confused about, I always thought that they were like, that Jesus was breaking the Old Testament laws. And I, I was like, okay, so Jesus is this different thing and the Old Testament's bad and throw that out. But I didn't understand that by this time, Judaism had been perverted, uh, corrupted big time. The scribes and the Pharisees turned Judaism, what they did was they went through the whole Old Testament law, the first five books of, of our Bible. It's called the law. It's also called the Torah. You'll hear that word again. And it's also called the books of Moses, right? And because Moses was the author, right? And so these first five books, what these Pharisees did was they went through all there and they took out 613 commands. And they said, all of these need to be followed meticulously for God to accept you. Can you imagine that? Have you ever read the Old Testament? Who's read the five, first five books of the Old Testament? About half of you. By the way, when you get to heaven, Moses is going to ask you if you read his books, all of you that didn't raise your hand. So you might want to get started. Can you imagine 
thinking that the only way you could be right with God is if you kept all of those things meticulously. God hates you. He's going to burn you if you don't do these things, right? That's the, kind of the attitude, right? Now, the Pharisees, they even kicked it up a notch and they came out with the rabbinical writings. Their rabbis, think of it like this. If you've got a hole that you don't want to fall in, smart thing to do would be to build a big fence around the hole to where nobody's going to fall in that hole, right? Okay. The rabbi's writings were sort of like that fence. They said, we don't want to break any of God's commandments. So what we want to do is we want to make thousands of rules that interpret the Old Testament and say, you know, for instance, let me give you an example. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't don't bear a burden on the Sabbath. God just says, just don't work. That's what God says regarding the Sabbath. He says, if anybody works on the Sabbath, stone them to death. But he just makes it simple. It's just one command. Don't work. So the Pharisees get together and they say, well, what does it mean to work? And they come up with thousands of laws of what it means to work. You got false teeth, you got to take them out on the Sabbath because you're working. You're bearing a burden by carrying your false teeth around. This is how they viewed religion. And so what they did was they created this system of thousands of rules that, in their mind, they pretended like they kept all these things perfectly, right? And so the common person at this time would say, I don't want anything to do with God. That's a huge, massive burden. Remember in the book of Galatians where Peter's trying to put a trip on the new believers and Paul says, why do you try to put them under the yoke of bondage that neither us or our fathers were able to keep? And so these people were like, you know, they have the deep, innate desire to be with God like all humans do. And then so then they want to come to religion. And then they go, you know, I, I can't do this. I, this is a massive burden. I need God. But every time I try to go to church, I get told what I can and can't do. I get told that I shouldn't dress like this. I get told that I should do this. I can't listen to this kind of music. I shouldn't do this. It's a huge, massive burden. And so a lot of people did what Matthew did. And they said, I'll become a tax collector. So I'll... To heck with religion. To heck with church. If all this is is just do's and don'ts and hundreds of them, I can't do that. You know. So Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I will give you rest from trying to earn God's love through your obedience. There are people that do this to themselves today. You know that? They get saved and they start to heap all these shoulds on themselves. You get saved and you're really zealous and you say, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible in five days. You ever done that? One time I saw that it only takes 72 hours to read the whole Bible. That's true. You look at an audio book. And how long that, you know, each chapter goes? 72 hours to read the whole Bible. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go stay in a hotel for three days and get away from everybody. 
you know, or, or whatever, or for 72 hours, and I'm just going to go through the whole Bible. I used to do stuff like that to myself. I used to say, you know what? I'm a Christian now. And so tell you what, I'm going to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. I'm going to read the Bible for two hours. I'm going to pray on my knees until I wear holes in the floor. And I'm going to do this all the time. And I made a whole list of things that I should do. And I should do these things, you know, perfectly. And I'll be a good Christian if I do those things. And I put myself under this massive burden. And eventually, you know, Oh my gosh. And it's so good when Jesus reminds you, he says, I didn't do that. I didn't do that to you. (laughs) I told you to believe in me. Come to me. You parents do it. You say, you know what? I'll only be a worthwhile person if I'm a good parent and if I do everything right and I got to do the things that, and you put these massive burdens on you and Jesus say, come to me, trust in me. Perfectionists. They're the masters of it. Perfectionists and the Pharisees would have got along well. People that find their self-worth through completing a task list, they love that sort of religion. But here's the thing about it. It's, it's crippling because it's not possible. You can't even follow the Ten Commandments for ten minutes. You can't. If you think you follow the Ten Commandments here today, you are, you're wrong. You don't follow the Ten Commandments. You might do your do a pretty good job of it, you know. But you don't. And so the Old Testament is supposed to make you realize that I'm not perfect and I need a savior. But the Pharisees said, no, all these laws, they're to be kept. And when you do it correctly, you're going to merit God. You're going to merit favor with God. And hey, look at us. We merit favor with God and you guys don't. And that's how religion was in those days. Look how holy we are. We're perfect. We don't dance. We don't smoke. We don't chew. We don't date girls that do. And uh, <laughs> that's terrible. It's probably the last time I can pull that one off here until we get new people, get a new batch of people in here. You'll hear it again. But that's how they were. You say, man, I know some people like that today. Yes, you do. But Jesus would go into those churches full of those legalistic people with their handbooks and say, you've got to do it our way. You've got to get baptized our way. You've got to dress like we do. You've got to sing like we do. You've got to think like we do. And he would say, you know what? Come unto me. I'll give you rest from all that stuff. Come with your task list. It's not bad to have a task list. But if you're down on yourself and you're beating yourself up and you think that you've got some bad relationship with God because you're failing, you don't get it. You you don't have a bad relationship with God because you're failing, right? We're all failing. Jesus didn't fail. We're wrapped in him. We're in Christ. He's our righteousness, I don't, I don't try to enter into that whole thought process again of like merit and, and earning and achieving and all that stuff. No, grace has been given to me. And I love Jesus Christ for what he's done for me. Because when God the Father sees me and my broken failure of a mess that I am, he sees Jesus, perfection. Jesus has come to me. All you who are beat down by yourself, by somebody else, Come to me, I'll give you rest. That's so good. Take my yoke upon you. He means literally, be attached to him. Can you go back to the picture of the oxen for again? You got two oxen together. Say that you've got one that's really strong and that you got one that's really weak. Well, the one that's strong, like his strength, like balances out for the other one, right? And pulls him along. And so the picture is, is like, you're tied to this other way of thinking that's just bringing condemnation on yourself. 
why don't you come out from every other obligation that you have, every other supreme obligation in your life, you know, every other thing that you're yoked to, why don't you just set all those burdens down and become yoked to me? And when you yoke yourself to Jesus, when you allow yourself to come under the yoke of Christ, he lifts your burdens. He refreshes your soul. His burdens are not wearisome. They're life-giving. There are many that need this rest today. You think God's burden is strenuous. Here he says his burden is light. You know, this is the only place in the four Gospels where Jesus talks about his heart. And he says, I'm lowly and gentle. That's good. You make up all these rules in your mind, this self-imposed religion. You weight yourself down, making standards for your performance. To you, if you perform correctly, you're right with God. When you don't, maybe you're not even saved. Maybe you know you're saved when you don't perform, but you think God hates you, that he's not going to bless you. It's because you've heaped burdens on yourself that God does not put on you. And so Jesus says, just believe in me and trust in me. But you say, believe plus. Jesus says, no, just believe in me. Trust in me. Follow me. Yoke yourself to me. And that's his offer to you right now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for that offer, and we do... We do need this. We need the rest that you give. We thank you, Father, that just like you did with John, that you deal with our reasonable doubts, you deal with our seasons of frailty, and you, um, you're so good to us. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fact that every time I've ever wavered and doubted and become impatient with you, that you didn't just trash me. Heavenly Father, I pray for anybody here today that's been under the weight of their own sin, that they would confess and bring it to you. Anybody that's been under the weight of a whole bunch of shoulds and a whole bunch of self-imposed religious standards, that they would just leave those with you. I pray especially for those that are confused about how you're working right now, God, that you would remind them of how you work and that you would turn their eyes to you. And Lord, that you would just bring that health and that healing that we need, that refreshment that we need. And we turn to you and we rely on you for it, Lord, and it comes from nowhere else. We welcome it now. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.